Hello, welcome to the Beatles Books podcast with me, Joe Wisby. My guest for this episode is David Jacks, who is here to discuss his new biography of Peter Asher, A Life in Music. Peter entered the Beatles world as the brother of Paul McCartney's girlfriend, Jane, and was first-hand witness to some of John and Paul's writing sessions at his home on Wimpole Street in London. This clearly inspired him as he formed a successful pop duo with his friend Gordon Waller and they took a Paul McCartney song to the top of the charts. David's book chronicles Peter's extraordinary life as a producer, a hitmaker, including time back with the Beatles at the heart of Apple Records. David Jacks, hello, welcome to the Beatles Books Podcast. How are you? I'm fine, thank you for having me. My pleasure. We are here to talk about your book on Peter Asher, A Life in Music, a man associated with the Beatles from lots of different angles. Uh, and we're going to focus on, over the course of this interview, his time really in the 60s and a little bit beyond that. But obviously your book goes into great detail after that. The age-old classic first question, where did the idea for the book come from? <laughs> I uh, ran into Peter. Most of my working life was involved in the entertainment industry as uh, either a uh, music supervisor or a video editor. But at that point, I was, and we're talking about 20 years ago, at that point, I was in between jobs and I just had this little part-time job just to keep me busy. And I was taking a lunch break and walked down the block to a local a Mexican fast food joint in Santa Monica, California, and was waiting in line to give my order. And the gentleman in front of me was talking to this young woman and uh, had a slight British accent and uh, was talking about some vague music-related things. And I was, you know, trying not to be too noisy, but I was listening and I was thinking, is this Peter Asher? <laughs> um, and so as soon as they stopped talking... I leaned forward and said, I'm sorry, are you Peter Asher? And he said, yes, I am. Very proud of the fact, it seems, and and why not? I said, well, I'd like to interview you. And uh, he turned to the woman next to him. He said, well, here's my assistant. She'll set it up. And it was that easy. And at the time, I was thinking, as I said, I was in between jobs. And I thought, well, you know, maybe I could write some article or something and and uh, start a little side career that way. I'd done a little bit of writing throughout my life, but nothing professional. And people seemed to think that I was somewhat good at it. And I thought, well, I'll just write a little article and uh, see if I can get that started. So that was how it started. I interviewed him. And after, you know, uh, about an hour and a half of the interview, and I went and transcribed it. And I thought, well, you know, rather than just a straight Q&A, maybe I'll talk to some people that he's worked with and flesh it out and make it more of a real sort of article. And that's what got it started. And and as I started working on that, the more I started thinking about, well, his career has been just so amazing and so long, and he's worked with so many people, maybe this could be a book. Mm. So I went back to him to interview him a second time and and uh, I told him, I said, yeah, well, first I said, are you going to write an autobiography? And he said, no, I have no interest in doing that. People have asked me and I'm not going to write one. And I said, well, uh, if you're not going to do it, I think I'd like to take a stab at, you know, writing a, a biography. And he looked at me like I was nuts. 
And he he just said, well, who's going to want to read it? It's just me. And I said, well, you know, I think there would be some people that would be interested in your career. Other than that, he never talked me, you know, tried to talk me out of it. Uh, he was always very um, open to meeting with me. You know, obviously he was busy. He had a job at the time working with Sanctuary Records. Um, but anytime I wanted to speak to him, he would set it up. I kept waiting for him to eventually <laughs> just get fed up and say, please go away, you know. But he never did. Uh, this took me a long time because, again, I was usually either looking for a job or I had a job or I'd be moving or I'd have to move again. Various, you know, life things would happen and I'd have to set it aside for a while. But I always kept coming back to it. And he uh, at one point said, you know, I admire your persistence. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, so finally, you know, after almost 20 years now, uh, the book came out uh, just a few months ago and uh, he said it was good. You know, and for Peter Asher to say it's good, you know, I, I figured that was high praise. So that's that's kind of how that went. I'm incredibly glad that you did write the book because it's, a, what as I'm concerned, a really insightful and interesting read. I think it's interesting if we look a little bit at Peter's early life. Most listeners will probably be aware of Wimpole Street, his home that was would later be the home of one Paul McCartney, and we'll certainly come back to that part of the story. But tell us a little bit about what life was like for the Ashes at that address. What kind of family were they? Well, his father, uh, some people might uh, know that he was well-respected a doctor in in London in the 40s, 50s, and uh, into the 60s. Uh, I guess his main claim to fame is that he uh, uh, discovered, I guess, and named uh, the condition known as Munchausen's syndrome. So he was a doctor, a uh, well-respected doctor in London. His mother, uh, Margaret, was a professor of music at the Royal Academy. Peter and his uh, sisters were surrounded by this, you know, very successful and intellectual family. I've heard stories about how during, you know, meals, they would uh, be discussing all kinds of different things, and they would jump up and get a book from the library and debate and talk about uh, various things. So it's it was a very intellectually stimulating uh, family that he grew up in. And of course, uh, with his mother, being a professor of music, she gave him uh, music lessons. Oh, then there was the acting. Him and his uh, sisters were signed up by a, a talent agency. I think what happened was one of Margaret's uh, friends uh, just said, well, you know, your kids, they all had red hair and they were all very cute. And so he said, well, they said, well, you should get them in front of the cameras. You know, they, they're, they'd be great. They got signed up immediately, and Peter, his very first job was uh, acting opposite Claudette Colbert, Academy Award-winning actress, playing her son in a movie. And he did a whole series of movies and television shows. He was on stage. Of course, Jane went on to a, a long career in acting. Uh, but yeah, they were very precocious, and I think in the book I compared them to um, the family and Peter Pan, the mom and the dad, the three kids, you know, in the middle of London, very precocious and and just uh, more uh, of an intellectual uh, situation than a lot of kids. But I'm sure it was uh, an amazing childhood that he had. 
I didn't know until I read your book that he'd been a child actor. Quite a bit of a revelation, really. I, was, I just wasn't aware of it. Did he enjoy the acting, and why didn't he continue it into adulthood? He, yeah, he talked about they would give uh, the, the kids that were signed up to this agency, you know, would go to acting classes. It was something I ended up cutting out of the book, but he talked about enjoying the acting classes, particularly because there was this beautiful girl that was... He loved going to classes, you know, and meeting these uh, very attractive young women. But uh, but yeah, he at one point he was in this uh, television show, uh, The Adventures of Robin Hood, and he uh, he was in that show uh, a good number of times. Part of what they would do for Robin Hood was give him, you know, riding lessons and archery lessons, and so. I mean, as a kid or, you know, young adolescent, I'm sure that was just a lot of fun. You're you're outside learning how to shoot arrows and, and doing all this daring do. And so, yeah, I'm sure he had a great time. Why he didn't continue, um, he told me that once he started going to Westminster School, that it was, you know, a, a difficult school, very academic and high standards and all that. And uh they frowned upon letting you out for, you know, any time you work on a film or a television show or a stage show. I mean, there's a lot of time involved and he just felt like he didn't, he couldn't do it. Um, mm. And he said, you know, once you start saying no to your agent, uh, they lose interest pretty quickly. He did go on and do a lot of radio because he said that you could just breeze in, you know, there's no costume fittings or memorizing lines. They just, hand you the script and you go through it, make a few notes, and then you do it. So he could do those very quickly. But that was kind of the end of his acting career, yeah. So after that, roughly after that, although I'm probably skipping through a little bit too quickly, enter Gordon Waller and the partnership that would kind of define the first part of Peter's life, I suppose, uh, Peter and Gordon. Tell us a little bit about, about them. How did they meet and how did they decide to, to form a pop duo? Well, they met at Westminster. Gordon was another student there. And Gordon had already been interested in music for a long time. Uh, as a matter of fact, something that Gordon told me was that he had been offered a recording contract as a teenager from uh, someone at EMI who um, heard him sing and play at, uh, at a Christmas party. And said, oh, you know, I'd like to uh, give you an audition. Uh, but, of course, he was too young. His parents wouldn't let him leave school. And so that was the end of that. But they said, well, you know, after school, uh, why don't you come back to us and we'll see if we can do something with you. Uh, so he had already been interested in music. Uh, of course, Peter was already learning to play guitar. The story that Gordon told me was he heard Peter playing in a room at Westminster and walked in and listened to him play and was very impressed. So, you know, just like, you know, your young guys and, oh, you play guitar too. And so you, they just developed, of course, they, they both love the Everly brothers. Gordon kind of brought his love of American rock and roll and Buddy Holly and things like that. And Peter was already interested in folk music. They just kind of combined their general interests. Gordon had this nice baritone. Peter had this nice tenor. Uh, they sounded good together. And, um, they said, well, let's just, you know, see what happens. They started playing parties and pubs where they could, you know, play for a while and get uh, free sandwiches and beer. 
and uh, eventually they did uh, get uh, some nice gigs, some better gigs. They started playing at a place called the Pickwick Club on, um, I think, Denmark Street. But uh, And then, then someone from EMI was uh, at the club and heard them and said, well, why don't you guys come and audition? And and that's how they got signed. I think a lot of people thought that maybe because Paul at that point was already dating Jane, that somehow Paul was able to get them a recording contract, but actually the, he had nothing to do with it. Uh, so they got signed. And luckily, uh, because of Peter's spare room next to him was uh, being... Uh, given over to Paul McCartney at that time that he could go to over to Paul and say, Oh, you know, we need a song. Remember that song you played me the other day? And could we have a crack at that? And, and that's how they got world without love. What was Peter and Gordon's relationship like? Was it a really close friendship or were, was it a bit more of a professional thing? Well, I think they were uh, close. Certainly their personalities were very different. Uh, Gordon was uh, much more of a, I guess a hellraiser and Peter was more of, like I said, the intellectual who liked to uh, read, read a lot. So their personalities were pretty different, but they knew that their sound uh, was good, that their harmonies, harmonizing was really good. I, I don't think they hung out a lot together, but they liked each other. So I, I guess sometimes that's all you need. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes that's all you need, you know? So the aforementioned Mr. McCartney then, uh, so so he arrives in, in Peter's life via Jane at the kind of end of 63 into 64. And then, of course, he, as you say, he moves into into 57 Wimpole Street. What was the setup there? He, he was in the book, you make it clear that he was very much in the spare room rather than with Jane, wasn't he? Yes, uh, that was something that I pointedly asked uh, Peter at one point, I said, well, you know, their boyfriend and girlfriend, they're living in the same house. You know, I mean, your parents must have been very liberal to let that go on. And he stopped me and he said, you know, Paul was in his room. Jane was in her room. It was conducted the way, you know, a proper British household would be conducted. Uh, so uh, he seemed to think that, uh, you know, anyone who thinks that it was just more of a swinging 60s kind of thing going on that that wasn't the case at all. It was a situation where, you know, he was hanging out a lot at Wimpole Street uh, in 1963. He and Jane were, you know, a nice item. And since he was over there a lot, from my understanding of Paul from reading various biographies, he's much more of that sort of kind of sense of home with Mrs. Asher, you know, could help with his laundry and his meals and, you know, having that kind of mother figure and a family around him. Uh, he was missing that from uh, having moved down to London with the rest of the Beatles. Uh, they were sharing this bachelor pad and uh, that wasn't really what he needed, I guess, at the time. So uh, they said, well, we have the spare room at the top right next to Peter's uh, bedroom. You know, you could just stay there. He jumped at the chance, I think. And uh, so he was there for almost three years. I mean, right in the middle of the height of Beatlemania, he was he was in uh, the Asher household. And I guess he had like a uh, the secret way to to leave the house instead of coming out the front. Uh, he would go out a window and along the the balcony to a house next door. He They'd worked out this whole system where he could avoid the fans that might be waiting downstairs and go through somebody else's 
<laughs> someone else's kitchen and you know, oh, I'm passing through, you know, that sort of thing. So uh, that must have been pretty wild. But he was there for a while, and uh, I'm sure that must have been a fairly amazing time. He and Peter did a lot of audio exper- experiments. They each had their own reel-to-reel tape recorder. So at times, I mean, he was busy. I mean, the Beatles were insanely busy. They were either recording or touring or whatever. But when he was there and when Peter was there, they could kind of play uh, with uh, these audio experiments, playing tapes backwards, putting stuff on the tape head to see how it varied the sound and uh, uh, all kinds of uh, things, which I think uh, helped influence uh, Revolver in in a big way, the experiments that they were doing together. I mean, he was getting a lot of ideas Again, it was an intellectually stimulating household, and he was getting a lot of ideas from them about art and uh, music, exposed to all different kinds of music while he was there. And, of course, playing around with sound with Peter. I think all this uh, helped influence uh, you know, what the Beatles were doing as they progressed musically. Did Peter talk a lot about a kind of a friendship with Paul? Did you get a sense that they really got on during that period? Yeah, yeah, I think they did. Peter is just a very nice guy. Uh, he's a very smart guy, and he's a very talented guy. And uh, I think that appealed uh, to Paul because I have a feeling that he's pretty much the same way. And both at the same time being, you know, pop stars, they could understand what the other might be going through in terms of that craziness. So, yeah, even though I don't, I don't think they had a lot of time to hang out together uh, but they were living in the same household, and uh, and when they were there together, I think that, uh, that they were very close to each other, yeah. As you mentioned then, Paul then hands Peter and Gordon this World Without Love, which is a huge hit, both sides of the Atlantic for Peter and Gordon. You referenced it slightly there. How did this come about, this this song? Was it something that Peter kind of asked Paul for? I think this was a song that Paul had for a while and would uh, bring it up occasionally when he and John would get together for writing sessions. But John thought it was stupid. The very first line, please lock me away. And, and John just would couldn't get past that. He just, it's just, yeah. or I think one way Peter said uh, he would react was, you know, he'd say, Paul would go, okay, please lock me away. And he'd say, all right, I will. That would be the end of it. I think Paul realized that it was never going to be a Beatles song, and so he didn't really finish it. Uh, he just had, I think, the first verse, maybe. Cert- there was certainly no no bridge, no middle eight to it. Peter heard Paul at one point sing it. So when they went into EMI to do their audition, uh, Norman Newell, who was the A&R guy, was thinking of Peter and Gordon more like Britain's answer to... Peter, Paul, and Mary, and the Kingston Trio, and all the folk stuff that was going on in the United States during that time. So he was thinking of them in that way, but he knew that they needed some sort of a of a song that would be maybe not an old song like 500 Miles or something, but something that would be more of a hit, possibly. And said, well, if you guys can come up with something, you know, we that's, I think, what you need. So... Peter went to Paul and said, remember that song you were playing us? Could we have that? And Paul was like, sure, because he was happy that somebody was interested in something that, you know, Lennon certainly wasn't. 
but he obviously he needed to finish it. So they were getting closer and closer to their uh, first recording date. And they said, you know, remember that I need that song finished. So Gordon said that they were there and, and said, you know, we come on and we're desperate for this song. And so Paul went into his bedroom, he said, and like just two minutes later came out and said, okay, well, how about this? And just uh, played the, the bridge. And they were like, yes, yes, thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. Yes, they uh, they asked Paul to finish it, and Paul was happy to finish it and give it to them. And, and they had a number one hit right off the bat, which is pretty unique. And of course, you know, in the United States, anything that had a Lennon and McCartney um songwriting credit on it was going to get played on the radio because they at that point the whole top five in the united states was were beetle records so it uh, got a lot of airplay and they uh they had a big hit and then they could come over to the united states and tour and and that started that whole uh, uh that whole scene for them um and certainly was you know a life-changing experience for for peter too i mean they loved uh american music everything uh I guess in England at the time, they were still trying to get over the rationing and the bomb sites and everything from that was left from World War II. So the whole British invasion was not only big for the United States, musically and culturally, it pretty much changed everything. But I think it also was a big uh, boost for Great Britain. Mm. Uh, so uh, as a young man, right in the midst of all that, I'm sure it was insanely exciting Peter and I you know I asked him about it and he uh, all the screaming girls and he was like oh yeah I mean you know I can't recommend it enough you know and he was a kind of a shy uh, uh, maybe not shy but very reserved as I said you know kind of intellectual guy and to be you know thrust in the middle of all that was uh, I can't imagine but I'm sure he enjoyed himself and Gordon certainly did because hmm. he was much more into the whole being a rock star, I mean, he really wanted that. He he loved Elvis Presley and uh, and all of that sort of thing, and he he really wanted the girls and the and the money and the fame and the he threw himself into that. Whereas I was talking to um, their liaison for Capitol Records, uh, and so when they would come to Los Angeles, you know, he'd be trying to look after them, and he would say, you know, Peter would at the end of a gig or a TV uh, show, you know, would go back to the hotel and read and relax. Gordon, you know, was just going to strip clubs and was driving down the middle of uh, Sunset Boulevard, you know, at 90 miles an hour. And like I said, their personalities were fairly different. So uh, again, kind of slightly scooting through here, but their pop career, whilst successful for a period, it does tail off. What happened? Why couldn't they quite sustain the success of of world without love uh well i think a lot of it had to do with gordon that he was just getting tired of the kind of music that was that their producer and their manager wanted them to do he was very kind of uh when i spoke to him he called it soft sweet shit the kind of stuff that they were being especially towards the end a lot of their hits at the end were almost novelty songs in a way it all started to get really, I think, get under Gordon's skin uh, what they were being told to do. I think one of their last albums were all like show tunes uh, somewhere and, uh, you know, that sort of thing. And so he got really fed up. And so he decided he wanted to do his own thing. And uh, I think that had a lot to do with it. And I think Peter also 
to a certain extent. You know, he was a smart guy and he knew being a pop star was going to come to an end eventually. So I think it kind of ran its course. Uh, they didn't like have some big breakup and, you know, yelling at each other. Uh, it was just kind of, well, maybe that's the end of it. And and so Gordon tried to have a solo career and it, it didn't go anywhere. He was drinking a lot at the time. Again, he was, I think, a lot of the frustrations with uh, his career uh, with Peter and Gordon. One of Peter and Gordon's last uh, records, You've Had Better Times, uh, was the name of the song that, that Gordon had written. It was a great record. I remember when hearing it on the radio when it came out, I thought, well, that's a great record. But it got banned because the folks at Capitol Records thought it was too sexually suggestive uh, with some of the lyrics. And so they pulled it and made them re-record it. Uh, but it just kind of stopped the whole momentum of the thing. And those sorts of corporate decisions also were pissing him off. So he was drinking more and more and being more unhappy. And that just kind of ended the, ended the duo. Peter, at that point, was getting more and more interested in record production. So that's kind of the way he went. He had a friend... Paul Jones, who was the lead singer of Man for Man, and uh, he was starting his solo career, and uh, he was also getting a little frustrated with John Burgess, who was Peter and Gordon's producer. Uh, he was also Paul's Paul Jones's producer, and he was getting frustrated with also the kind of stuff that uh, he was being given. He asked, uh, uh, and they were also sharing a manager, Paul and, and Peter. So uh, Paul asked uh, his manager, well, maybe Peter would be interested in, in producing some stuff for me. Peter was a little taken aback because he said, normally, you know, if you go to someone and you, as a producer, you want to hire, it's like, well, what have you produced lately? What's the resume? And for Peter, it was like basically nothing. Uh, he got Peter to produce a single. Uh, it wasn't a big hit, but critically in the in the music press in, in England, uh, they were raving about it. They thought it was great. That kind of started Peter's production career. There's a really, really interesting picture in the book, which I love, which I'd never seen before, maybe because it's never been shown before. And it's a picture of Peter Asher stood behind the counter at the Indica bookshop and gallery. Uh, mm -hmm. And next to him is Barry Miles. Most listeners will know is was obviously involved in the gallery itself, and many years later would be Paul McCartney's biographer. Uh, and there's a guy stood buying something from Peter. There's a, a poster on the wall of of Fluxus Yoko Ono's group, and there's all this just general kind of sixties ephemera. And I just love that picture. So tell us a little bit about how Peter became involved in Indica Gallery. I didn't realize that a pop star like Peter would have been then was serving customers. Yes. Um, I mean, even Paul McCartney, who helped uh, set up the original, the original bookshop, it was a combination art gallery and bookshop. And that was at, uh, in Mason's yard within about a year or so, I think within a year, uh, they realized that there wasn't enough foot traffic there to really support the bookshop. So they ended up moving the bookshop, elsewhere and that's the picture that you're talking about was the second second place but paul mccartney was even i mean it was like everyone was just you know it was one of those things like hey let's put on a show or, hey let's build a bookshop <laughs> and so paul and peter and everybody were contributing and building shelves and uh, i think even the asher family 
gave them a uh, cash register, some ancient cash register. That was the original one. Um, I think they moved on to a better one in the picture that you're talking about. But it was all just everyone just contributing and helping set the thing up. Whenever Peter was around, I mean, he was one of the co-owners. So whenever he was in town, he would stop by and, and see and help, you know, however he could help. And that's if he was someone needed to man the cash register, you know, he would do that. He met John Dunbar by John's sister was Gordon's girlfriend. Um, and but eventually the the Dunbars moved to London. And uh, that's when Peter met John Dunbar. And they hit it off because they were both, again, intellectual guys. They read a lot. They could talk to each other about all kinds of different things. Peter's very knowledgeable about because he's read so much. He, he knows a lot about a lot. So he, whenever you talk to him, you know, it's amazing the, the kind of stuff that uh, information you can get from Peter. Uh, so they, they hit it off. And also uh, Barry Miles was running a book a bookshop, Better Books, I think it was called. They all started hanging out together. And John and, and Barry decided, well, why don't we combine our interests in art and books and put a shop together? And uh, they didn't have a lot of money, but they were friends with Peter. Peter, of course, is this rock star who's earning something. And so he he actually lent Barry 700 pounds and he lent John 700 pounds and then he put in his own 700 pounds and they uh, went into business together and they started Indica. There are a lot of black and white pictures in the book that I got. And again, this is just one of those things that happens when you're interviewing people. I was interviewing this guy called uh, Keith Avison, who was uh, Peter and Gordon's road manager in the mid 60s. And Peter had just, I didn't know anything about him. Peter mentioned him during one of my interviews. I thought, oh, well, let me see if I can track him down. And I was able to. And uh, at near the end of the interview, I just said, oh, you know, would you happen to have any pictures from your time with them? And he said, you know, I moved recently and I came across this big folder of, of, of photographs. It was in a box in my attic or something, you know, all these years. And I'll, I'll send you some. I thought, well, great. And then this big thing arrived in the mail, and it was hundreds and hundreds of strips of negatives, black and white negatives, just hundreds of them. And I got them all digitized. And of course, I gave Peter a copy. I said, well, these are yours. So yeah, all those early black and white pictures you see of Peter and Gordon on stage or in the recording studio or behind the till at Indica, this was all because I just said, well, do you have anything? And he Brilliant. sent all these pictures. So yeah, the next the next part of the story, which again brings the Beatles back into the picture, is Peter's time at Apple Records, which is another endlessly fascinating chapter of the Beatles story and by proxy of Peter's story. How did he become involved at Apple and what was his kind of early job role there? Well, this uh, relates back to what I was saying about uh, Paul Jones. The first record that has Peter's name on it as producer uh, was that Paul Jones track. And uh, when Peter was putting the band together for who was going to play on that record, he asked bass player in the in the Yardbirds, Paul Samuel Smith. So uh, he was friends with Paul. 
And so Paul was going to come in and play bass. And then he asked Paul, well, your new lead guitarist in the Yardbirds, uh, let's get him in. So that was Jeff Beck. Uh, they got Nicky Hopkins, I think, to come in on piano. Uh, so he had this kind of super group already kind of being formed for this record. And of course, Paul McCartney heard what was going on and wanted to be involved, but they already had uh, Paul Samuel Smith on bass. So he said, well, I'll play drums. So Paul played drums on the track. So because he had experienced seeing Peter uh, kind of in charge of that session within the next year, you know, they're putting Apple together and he and uh, Peter are hanging out and he's talking about Apple and what it's going to be. And he says, well, you know, uh, why don't you produce some stuff for us? Uh, and he says, yeah, fine. Uh, but then it soon turned into, well, we're going to need someone to be in charge of the whole A&R department. And they said, well, would you be interested in being the A&R, the head of A&R? And Peter said, well, yeah. You know, I mean, what could be cooler working for a brand new record label and the Beatles are your your bosses? Uh, so, yeah, he got brought in because, you know, Paul saw what he could do and had faith in him and so hired him to be the head of A&R. And, of course, within just a few weeks of that happening, there's a knock on his door and this tall American is there and... uh plays him his demo tape. Uh, and this is all because one of the things Peter and Gordon would have to do during their tours in the United States, they'd have to get a backing band. And almost every time they came over, they would their manager would have a different band or waiting for them. And I guess at one point, the band that got hired weren't up to snuff. So they decided, well, we're going to have to just quickly find somebody else to accompany us on this, you know, a couple of weeks tour. And they found a band in New York called the King Bees. And the guitarist for the King Bees was a guy named Danny Korchmar. So he and Peter became very friendly during that tour and they stayed in touch. So Danny Korchmar had a childhood friend. He used to be in a couple of different uh, groups with uh, named James Taylor. So when James Taylor was told Danny at one point that he was just going to go off into Europe and just busk in the street and get by however he could just for like this, you know, hippie adventure, Danny gave him Peter's name and phone number and said, well, you should contact this guy when you're in London. You know, he might be able to help you. So he walked up to Peter's door and he had a, he'd put a little demo tape together of some songs and, and said, I'm Cooch's friend. And uh, here's my demo. So uh, Peter put it on his reel-to-reel. And uh, I spoke with Peter's ex-wife, uh, Betsy. They were married at the time. And Betsy said that by the end of the first song, he, she said that Peter and I just looked at each other with our mouths open uh, because it was obvious that uh, this guy had a lot of talent. The songs, the way he he sang, his guitar playing. I mean, the whole, you know, and he was a handsome guy. It's like the whole package was just like right there in front of him. He was like, well, you know, I've just been hired to be A&R director for this record label and I'd like to sign you. Mm. So that's how uh, James Taylor came into his life. And he signed him up. I guess he was actually, besides the Beatles, he was the first person signed to Apple Records. Mm. Uh, so Peter produced an album while he was at Apple. Uh, so the first James Taylor album is on Apple. Uh, but uh, looking back on it, both Peter and James uh, both told me that uh, they thought it was a little too overproduced. Peter said that he really wanted to try to make it stand out from everything else, kind of in the folk field at the time. 
so it was a little too, you know, a little too overproduced. So he kind of learned his lesson because by the time they got around to doing the second album and Apple, they had left Apple and come over to the United States. So he was signed to Warner Brothers. And so for that album, he just wanted to make it as plain as possible who James Taylor was and get all of the string quartets and backing band and make it just all about James. So um, that's how uh, Sweet Baby James came about. But yeah, that was uh, uh, certainly an important uh, happenstance in Peter's life for James to show up and uh, to sign him and, and then became his manager, not just producer. Did Peter talk to you much about what life was like at Apple? We hear tales of all this this kind of chaos, certainly in the in the pre-Klein part of it. Did you get a sense from Peter that that was what it was like? I, I didn't press him on that, and he didn't offer any, you know, wild and crazy stories. Other people did. <laughs> so I talked to other people that were at Apple, and they were all saying, yeah, it was, you know, sex, drugs, rock and roll. It was crazy. It was, you know, nobody was minding the store. Uh, it was kind of chaotic. Uh, so, yeah, it seems that what I heard from everybody else, all those kind of stories are are true. One person said that, you know, anytime anybody uh, of any stature came to London, you know, rather than wanting to go, you know, see the prime minister or something like that, they would want to come to Apple and see the Beatles, you know, so everyone was coming by. But besides all that chaos, they did manage to make some great records. I mean, not just the Beatles stuff, but, uh, you know, that first Mary Hopkin album is great. I mean, even her second album, I think, is even better than the first one. There was some great music that from that first year, just that first year alone, there was some really good music that came out of Apple Records. So they were able to get some stuff done. But it, well, yeah, it certainly, I'm sure it was crazy. Did Peter's role change at Apple after Alan Klein came in? How, how did his role kind of develop in the that part of, of Apple's history? Well, interestingly, Peter's first wife, Betsy, had worked for Alan Klein in New York. She was doing like publicity and things like that for his company. And so she had already kind of warned Peter about Alan. Peter said, you know, I had heard stories from Betsy. I didn't really like what I was hearing. She said he wasn't a bad boss. He wasn't like throwing things, I guess, and treating people horribly. But I guess his some of his business shenanigans and things like that. And John Oliver, who was at Apple, uh, said that he was just a pain in the ass. I mean, it was just hard to deal with. So so he and Peter just didn't get along when Apple, uh, when Alan Klein came to Apple. Uh, they just, their personalities just didn't work. So I think Peter decided it was time to go. He just didn't want to hang around. It was all, you know, the whole atmosphere was kind of changing. Uh, they had started, you know, Zapple, Zapple Records, which was this little experimental side label that Barry Miles they put in charge of. And uh, one of the first things that, you know, Alan Klein did was just shudder that, you know, okay, no more of that nonsense. And so things were just changing. And Peter just said, you know, okay, that's fine. I'll, I'll go somewhere else. I'll take James and we'll go somewhere else. Now, he didn't get like permission, I guess, to like take one of their artists, signed artists, and and <laughs> leave the country and go do something else. But I guess uh, there were some talks with, you know, both George and Paul let him go. 
which they they were able to do. Uh, one of the quotes in the book was where they went to George and uh, George, you know, saying, well, you know, we want to take James and I hope we'll get your blessing for that. And they said, George said, well, I don't want to be a Twitter a twat, which meant, you know, I don't want to be, I don't want to stand in the way of an artist. But at the same time, on the business side of things, I don't want to just let an artist go. But eventually they, they, they did. So mm. lucky for them. I think Peter said in the contract he did with Warner Brothers, he, he made a stipulation that they could avoid any kind of lawsuits. They wouldn't be held liable for any lawsuits that Apple would throw their way. Uh, but eventually, I guess, Alan Klein just decided it wasn't worth the trouble and it was okay with him. So luckily, they didn't have to deal with that. Um, but they were worried that that was going to happen, that they were just going to get sued. Mm. But I guess they decided they they made their choice between twat and twit and let let him go. So that was how that worked. Talking of pictures in the book, there's a another picture which I had seen before, where Peter is sat backstage at a Wings concert, uh, what looks like the 1976 Wings Over America tour. Right. And Peter is there chatting to to Paul. Paul, obviously, with the acoustic guitar, as usual, draped around him. And Linda Ronstadt is is chatting to, to Linda. Um, I, I was just wondering, really, if you got a sense, either in the conversations you had with, with Peter or just from writing the book, whether or not they, Peter and Paul, kind of remained friends through that period. And, of course, they never worked together. Peter didn't produce any anything of, of Paul's or, or Wing's Um was there still a bit, of, a bit of a friendship and a relationship there? Yes, I think so. Peter certainly helped Paul a lot at Apple with his projects, like with uh, uh, Mary Hopkin and uh, helping to record the Black Dyke Mills Band, uh, that single that they did. I was asking Peter at the time, I said, well, it sounds like you were kind of executive producer of these things. And he said, oh, yeah, I think that's what you would call it today. It was, you know, it was Paul's vision but I was helping him to achieve them. They had to get a cymbal player for those were the days, you know? And so it was Peter's job to find the, the top cymbal player in London. Uh, so he was helping Paul with lots of those little details. Uh, so Paul certainly, I think, respected Peter's ability to, to pull these things together. But yes, after, I think after uh, the breakup with Jane, to a certain extent, that things cooled a little bit between them because of that. But certainly they still liked each other, respected each other. And uh, once Peter moved to the United States in early 1969, uh, their paths didn't cross that much. Although, like you said, there is that picture of them backstage. I asked Peter, you know, pointedly at one point, I said, you know, you produce hits. Paul McCartney likes to have hits. Why aren't the two of you at some point making hits together, you know? And he said, well, he never asked me. But a lot of it has to do with, you know, they're on different sides of the globe most of the time. They're both really busy. I mean, Peter would go from one project to the next. I mean, there was hardly any room in between in that string of records he was doing in the uh, uh, 70s and 80s. Uh, he would go from one to the other almost immediately. He would always have something cooking while he was finishing, you know, another project. So he said, you know, we're both just busy and we're living different places. He said, but anytime we, we do get together, you know, it's all hugs and, 
friendship and all that. I think it's something that he's thought about, obviously, over the years, uh, that it would be fun to do. Immediate response was, well, he never asked me. Mm. So I think he's like, in, this, in a way, well, waiting for Paul to go, hey, let's get together and do something. Because Peter's not a pushy guy. You know, he's not the sort of person to push himself on somebody. But he'd certainly say yes, you know, immediately if Paul ever said, let's get together. So a bit of a concluding question now. As I said, there's lots more in the book about Peter's life after the 60s. And readers will discover that should they purchase the book, which I hope they do. Peter had a uh, a lot of success, as you say in the book, in a lot of areas of his life. Did writing the book, and obviously spending what sounds like a, a large amount of time with Peter, did that give you an insight into why he was successful and he was kind of so well thought of? Uh, well, I can't tell you how many people, when I would contact them, would say, oh, I'm so happy, you know, you're writing this book about Peter. Uh, he really deserves someone telling his story. I probably shouldn't say this. There was one... Out of the 200 plus people that I contacted, uh, there was one person who said, I have nothing nice to say about Peter Asher. Uh, and I told Peter this and he was, he, I could see he was like incredibly surprised, you know, who, well, who is that? Uh, and I told him and he was, he, I could see him. He's like going through his mind going, well, what did I say? Or what did I do? You know, he couldn't figure it out, but it goes back to this uh, things I was saying earlier. You know, he's incredibly intelligent. He's incredibly musical. He may not be talented enough to play, you know, a stinging lead guitar, but he just knows so much about music and how to put records together and what he needs, a little, just a little bit of that, not too much of that. Uh, what about this idea? Let's try this. He's smart and he's talented and he's nice. So why wouldn't you want to work with somebody like that? There's a lot of people that are good at being a musician. Uh, and there's some people that are good at being maybe a musician and a producer. There's almost nobody that's good at being a, a musician and a producer and a manager, a vice president of a, of a label. I mean, and he's done all that and he's done it successfully. I mean, I can't think of anybody else that's had that kind of a career, been successful at it. And then just as a, as a producer, the types of music that he's produced over the years i mean it's been everything you know not just rock and pop and folk and country and he's done show tunes and movie soundtracks and dance music latin music so that's one of the reasons i wanted to write the book was just kind of remind people well don't forget this guy he's he's amazingly good at what he does he's had such an amazing career buy the book you'll see what i'm talking about well, David, it's been really enjoyable speaking to you. It's a fascinating book with lots of Beatle-related stuff in there for readers. So it, all that's left is for me to thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you for asking me, and uh, good luck with uh, with your show.